Hi there. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben, your host. Today we're going to throw it back to episode 113. This is with a mountain guide, Brian Warren. Some of you might remember this episode. I really enjoyed this one uh, because I think it's really characteristic of what we try to do on this show, and that is to look at how these, what I don't know, they seem like extreme people, right, these mountain guides, and we try to apply what they do back to our everyday lives. And also we explore human nature and typical human behavior and see if that applies to their lives. Uh, in this case, we talked a lot about social influences, how what the people around you do can actually impact what you do, the decisions you make. When we start to talk about if that applies in an extreme environment like mountaineering, where choices could be life or death, uh, this gets to be a pretty heavy topic. Now, on a separate but related note, we have this support page on our website. It's brand new. I want you to go visit that. I want you to check out what we have to offer. How could I convince you to do that? Maybe I could tell you about what each donation buys, the fun stuff we're doing. Or I could tell you about the big giveaway we do each month for the people who donate or even, I could tell you that giving to others makes people happier. But let's see if there's any truth to this social influence stuff I just talked about. Go check out our support page. Everybody's doing it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of this podcast that we call Mountain Meister. Today on the show, we welcome Brian Warren. Hello, Brian. Hello, Ben. For the listeners who don't know Brian Warren, he is a professional year-round mountain guide based out of Jackson, Wyoming. He guides in various parts of the world, including but not limited to Jackson Hole, the Pacific Northwest, and the European Alps. He has also guided in Alaska and climbed in sorry, he has also climbed and guided in Alaska, Canada, South America, and the Himalaya. He presently holds IFMGA and AMGA aspirant status, and he is an Avalanche Level 3 certified guide, which I believe, is that the highest level, Brian? It is the highest level in the U.S. In the correct. U.S. Well, congratulations on that. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I am sure that you're surrounded by people in the mountain community who think that being a mountain guide isn't a weird job. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually about as weird as being a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, how, how do people react outside of that community when you tell them you're a mountain guide? You know, I think outside of the, the guiding world, we do have to remind ourselves that, yeah, it is a really small community. It is a very uh, niche mm -hmm. occupation. And I know, you know, growing up in, you know, the South, uh, it the questions are always, are you hunting and fishing? <laughs> and that's something I'm constantly having to explain to family and friends and, and people that don't quite understand, you know, what a lot of us guides do across the American West and, and obviously on an international level. Um, but yeah, it is, is a, it's definitely a lot to it, right? And I think there's so many facets of guiding that it's hard for people to comprehend that people bounce around and it's very seasonal and it's based all around the weather really is what it comes down to is as your work revolves around the weather and and moving people through the mountains and so it's definitely uh it is interesting to try to break down in a very simplistic manner to people that have no idea 
or no concept of what it is. Yeah. You mentioned those questions. The questions that I get when I tell people that I host a podcast, how did you get into that? How did you make money? Or how do you make money? And, <laughs> and how do you find people to come on to the podcast? So I'm going right. to I'm gonna turn those around on you. Um, I don't, I actually don't get sick of these questions, even though I get them all the time. Uh, it's just that like none of them have very easy answers. Correct. So when people yeah. ask you them like in a loud bar or whatever, it's like, well, we need to go somewhere else to talk about how I make money. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you get into that is the first question. How did you get into mountain guiding? So for me, uh, you know, I often joke, I, I say I kind of fell into it and really it, it was never something I, you know, had concept of. Obviously, I made the mistake, fortunately, of driving from Atlanta, Georgia to Jackson, Wyoming when I was 20 years old. Wow. And during that time period, I basically, you know, I'd pick Jackson on the map. I'd, I'd just recently finished a Knowles course in Alaska, so I'd been introduced to, you know, some outdoor education and leadership but prior to that, I'd never been to Jackson. I had no job. I didn't know a single person there. I had no place to live. And I rolled in in October and you know, basically got a job at the ski resort that first winter. Um, and around 2006, after years of living out west and, and working numerous jobs, I decided to take a, an American Mountain Guides Association uh, guides course. And so I basically... Uh, took a guides course to see if it was something I'd be interested in. And then I started looking around at, you know, maybe this is something I'd like to do. And I started contacting, obviously, local guide services and, and you know, looking for mentors. And, and it was around that time, that 2006, 2007 winter, I also made the decision to move uh, and live in the, the Alps in France and ski for the season. Hmm. So the second question was, how do you make money? I think we can safely assume that people pay you to take <laughs> to take them out there. <laughs> the third one is a little bit more interesting. How do you find people who trust you enough to bring you out into the wild? Has that ever been a problem? It's a constant problem. I think, you know, that's the amazing thing about mountain guiding. I'm always blown away that, you know, for what we do and our skill and our trade is moving people safely through the mountains. The amount of time I spend on a computer and social media and answering questions and on the phone and conference calls and and basically trying to solicit people mm-hmm. to you know figure out what their goals are if it if they exist in the mountains and then how do we get them out there with this right mm-hmm. i mean that's it's with any industry it's like where do your where do your guests and your clientele come from and uh, it's definitely a small small percentage of the world that one can afford to get out with with guides for small and large objectives uh, and two, people that, you know, do they have the time? Do yeah. they have time to, to go into the mountains for a day or a three-day trip or a 70-day expedition? So Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I'll admit that I was once a victim at, at one point in time in thinking that guiding on mountains is essentially like the same experience as climbing it for the reasons that people do, but it's actually so, so different as you're starting to talk about how, how is it different, I guess? And you talked a little bit about, um, trying to, to get the people on the mountain, but let's talk about while you're on the mountain, how is the experience different? You know, I think it's, it, it's very different, right? Cause you're managing, obviously you're managing your expectations and how you, uh, kind of have forecasted, the trip to run, you know, whether it's a single day rock climb or it's a, 
multi-week expedition. Um, and so suddenly you're, you're in this position where you are managing people's time and money and expectations and essentially personality. And, you know, you're watching this person kind of ride the, the human emotion roller coaster, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's short term or long term. And so it, it's interesting. You you kind of have the, the level of, okay, I'm, I'm a mountain guide. I have a skill set. I know what to apply at the right time um, given the conditions. And so really most of your focus is managing this person on so many different levels, right? Like, mm-hmm. are, are they happy? Are they well-fed? Are they feeling well? Are they feeling strong? Um, are they enjoying this? You know, are they going to come back? Is this something they're, uh, you know, they're finding pleasure in? Um, so really it is just managing managing humans in the mountain environment is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Do you have any desire to manage humans in a different capacity, or do you like this raw form of managing emotion, uh, uh, appetite, I guess, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in different levels of mountain travel, you know, that's, I'm looking to branch out a little bit. We've, um, I've been working a lot in some, you know, mountain production arenas recently Mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. And and it's very similar, right? It's very similar to running an expedition, um, but of course, it's a little more fast-paced, shorter schedules, um, sometimes very direct objectives of getting certain shots. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really think uh, managing logistics, managing people, and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together is is truly what I do enjoy. Um, kind of making, you know, kind of painting a picture and and trying to make it fit at the end of the day we hear a lot of people talk about how they feel this very intimate connection with the mountains um it sounds to me almost like that's not you you enjoy more of the logistical part of this um true for sure you know i think it's it's one of those challenging things where you're like we're gonna move this many people up and down set objective Mm -hmm. Um, but within that, on a daily basis, and even down to like a minute, you know, minute and hourly and half hourly, it's like you're you're watching people change, you're watching people push themselves. Um, and so, not to take away from that, I, I truly enjoy uh, what I consider like the fight, mm-hmm. right? I, I love watching people kind of you know see what they're made of and, and see how far they can push themselves. And and obviously, as guides, we're we're there to facilitate that. We're there to help drive and, and coach and lead and mentor, um, you know, even people that have more experience than, than you or have had many more days in the mountains, you're, you're still there to, to facilitate the day or, mm-hmm. or the expedition or the, or the ski run. Um, and so I think on the broader level, I love organizing trips and making trips happen, whether it's a you know, short trip, long trip. Uh, but at the end of the day, really watching, watching people, you know, give it all they got, um, you know, and just put the smile on their face. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious then if you love this human guiding element of it so much. How often do you climb for personal reasons? You know, people always ask, "Well, what do you do on your day off?" And and I, you know, it's true. We're usually in the mountains, uh, climbing or skiing. And and I'm fortunate enough to to live in an area that, you know, I can. In a minute's notice, I can grab my skis and, mm-hmm. and meet friends and go ski touring or, or ski at the ski area, you know, minutes from where I live. Um, 
And it's a little bit different in the summertime, I think. I, you know, we're so busy as guides and, and where I do most of my summer guiding, it's a very short season. Um, but yeah, when we're, especially I know for myself, if, if I have a day off, uh, I am usually found in the mountains. Um, and I do have a lot of goals for personal climbs and personal ski trips and, and things I'd like to do that don't necessarily revolve around guiding people. Now, would you say that your appetite for risk or whatever risk you're willing to accept, is that different when you're guiding people versus your own personal pursuits? I wouldn't say it, it's drastically different. Obviously, there's going to be some disparity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the, at the end of the day, you really have to ask yourself, you know, what's the internal dialogue and how is it interacting with the mountain environment? And I, you know, I was having this conversation the other day with uh, a lot of the winter guides I work with in the Tetons, and you know, we were stating between avalanche education and, and ski guiding and, and guiding the Grand Teton all summer that my decision making and, and risk acceptance really isn't different whether I'm out with friends, uh, colleagues, you know, or guests. Um, I don't think it, it really has much disparity uh, in the realm of I, as if I'm going to push further in the mountains or take more risk on a personal level versus a a professional level. We're we're starting to transition beautifully into the next topic, (laughs) which is I want to talk about uh, conforming to social pressures. And you're lucky enough to have your interview in the middle of while I'm reading this book called Nudge uh, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who are both uh, economists and deal with a lot of human behavior. Right. This is a fascinating topic, and I want to bring up one experiment that I read about this morning. Uh, So bear with me. I'm just going to explain this experiment, get your perspective on it, and then eventually we're going to tie it all back to to mountain guiding. Perfect. So you, Brian, are in a room with five other people, and all of you are given a a really simple task. Uh, The group of you are given this white card together, and there's a line, just like a a line drawn on, uh, on the card that's a certain length. And then you're shown three other lines uh, on a screen, and all you have to do is match the length of the line that you see on this card to the line that you see on the screen right in front of you guys. So super, super simple task. Uh, All you're doing is matching lines. Uh, So in the first three rounds of doing this, everybody agrees with everybody, right? You're all like, okay, yep, that line matches that line. (laughs) Then in the fourth round, you notice that each person chooses a different line than the one you were going to choose. So everybody chooses this other line. You thought it was uh, a, a different one. So it comes to you. You have to choose. Are you choosing the line that everybody else chose, or are you going to choose the one that originally looks similar to you? I think you have to go with instinct and say, this is this is my decision. I'm so, sticking with it. So you would think that that's the case for everyone, But sadly, it isn't. (laughs) When this experiment is conducted, between 20 and 40% of people conform to the decisions of the others in the group. Right. And what's even scarier is that when researchers monitor brain activity during this experiment, the subject who conforms to the group actually ends up believing 
that he or she sees the situation as everybody else. <laughs> so to, to, Sounds to, about right. To me, this is a little disturbing, uh, especially when we put it into the context of the decisions that can have real consequences. Right. Uh, have you, have there been times when you've identified like this social conformity on the mountain? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, <clears throat> I think the, you know, moving people through the mountain environment, it's, it's of course, you're sometimes using conformity to your advantage. Hmm. You know, I'm not going to hide that. There's, there's often, you know, if there's weather issues or, or people are having, you know, physical or fitness issues. Um, yeah, there's definitely times where you try to get the group to conform in, in mm-hmm. one way or another. Interesting. And I, I want to flash back to uh, another interview that we had with a guy named Eric Meyer. And wow, I wish I could remember what episode number he is. I'm going to say 84, uh, but I might have to edit that out and put in another number. <laughs> um, and he was on K2 during the 2008 disaster. Mm-hmm. And we flash back to like, why? Why did that happen? Why did people continue going up the mountain? Yet when he saw that conditions weren't for him, he stopped. Right. And he said, you know, I think it was just a matter of groupthink. People right. just kept like follow the leader. For sure. I mean, the, we, the, the sheeple effect, right? We as guides and, and mm, mountain sheeple. educators, it's like we, I refer to the sheeple. Yeah. Good term. Effect all the time. And, and we see it in play all the time, summer, winter, doesn't matter what mountain, doesn't matter, you know, if it's a day trip or an expedition, like it exists for sure. How, how do you avoid it? How do you avoid the sheeple effect, right? How do you not become one of the the sheeple? It, you know, I don't know. It, it's interesting. I, I spend so many days of winter teaching, you know, avalanche education and talking about the the, the decisions that humans make in high risk environments, and how do we control humans, and how do we how do we basically keep ourselves to our personal constraints? Uh, it's it's an ongoing battle for sure. You know, there's so many outside variables that are driving people. Um, how do you not conform to to what others are doing in the mountains? I think it's really tough. Yeah, it's just so crucial to stay objective. Right. It's absolutely crucial. I mean, we always talk about, you know, hazards that you can control and risk that you can kind of manage. And, and outside of that, there's so many things out of your control. Yeah. Um, if you start losing control of yourself and your personal, you know, self-preservation and your, and your personal goals and, and, and views, um, and basically, you know, your, the processes that you typically go through, I think if you lose control of that, things can quickly get out of hand yeah it's such a fascinating dynamic to me because like normally we're talking about if a mistake happens it's not the end of the world but in this case you know when we're talking about high altitude mountaineering or or whatever it is right it's like (laughs) bad things can happen bad things like just just because (laughs) of human behavior like right. because of things that are biologically or just like how our brains work it's it's scary totally uh-huh. yeah uh, on a lighter note another example of social conformity uh on average when we eat with another person we find ourselves eating about 35% more than when we're alone uh people in a group of 4 eat about 75% more wow and in a group of 7 plus Ninety-six percent more. Ninety-six percent more. Almost twice as much. 
probably a, start passing around bottles of wine. I was going to say, know. that's a lot of wine. <laughs> yep, it is. And, and all of this stuff, uh, again, I think I mentioned at the beginning, all this stuff is coming from a book I'm currently reading called Nudge. Uh, I'll have the link on your Meister profile page, Brian. And Perfect. if anybody is out there, including you, uh, listening, if you're interested in listening to the audio version, we have this deal with audible.com. If you click on the link on Brian's page, we get credit for that. You get a free month worth of audiobooks or one audiobook. So, anyway, on to another topic. We mentioned you're a level three avalanche instructor. Uh, avalanche safety is always a hot topic. I want to talk specifically about technology that's developing around the issue, uh, which seems great, uh, but we'll talk about that. There's a new company called Avatech, which has been very popular thus far, and you have been involved in uh, in using this tool. Tell us a little bit about Avatech. So Avatech, you know, obviously the it's definitely the hot topic this season. I think it it you know <clears throat> hit on a lot of different levels. I think people were looking for something new. Um, obviously it's, it's another tool of the trade as far as making observations and, you know, in the wintertime environment, we always talk about moving through the mountains and, and making your, your field obs and your weather obs and of course your snow obs. And Avatech has really figured out a, a way to confirm and track, uh, snow observations, you know, over the terrain and, and over time. And it's a tool that, you know, if people aren't familiar with it, it's it's very similar to uh, an avalanche uh, safety probe, rescue probe, um, except on one end of the probe, uh, the end you're not driving into the snow is obviously a, looks similar to a GPS. Um, it's this little monitor that is basically reading densities and changes of density in the snowpack. And this is something that you know, at the very simplistic level of, of snow safety, we're always tracking densities. We're always looking at, do we have, you know, heavy over light? Do we have strong over weak? Um, and obviously those are things we're constantly thinking about when it comes to avalanches and where and when do they release. And so with Avatech, we now have the technology to um, not necessarily – uh, glaze over any sort of observations, but we have the ability to track densities, I think, at a, as a, at a faster rate um, throughout a given day mm-hmm. and, and maybe get throughout the terrain as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating technology. I think it's just available to guides right now and to the broader public soon. It is. So right now it's at a professional level. Um, Avatech uh, they do have some software called Avanet, which is a, 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 an amazing platform for uh, posting observations and, and sharing observations and, and getting uh, more and more knowledge out there. Um, and so there's a couple of different levels of the, the software, but at this point, the, the Avatech um, S1 probe is only available in the hands of basically snow professionals. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, everything transpires. Uh, what I was going to bring up here with all of this technology developing around avalanche education, um, we've heard popular examples of too much technology. Uh, something uh, a popular one is in football. Some argue that improvements in helmet technology make players have a false sense of security and then right. the concussions increase. Uh, there are many examples of where people just get complacent and they rely on 
too many uh, too many things and then there's this rebound effect right do you see this as a possibility in avalanche safety oh not e- not even a possibility it's a reality reality mm-hmm. for sure i mean i you've caught me right in the middle of you know i just wrapped up a, a level two course last weekend just taught another level one and i have another level two coming up and so you know for the past two weeks i've just been basically talking day in and day out about decision making and and technology and and avalanches and and for sure people definitely have this this uh kind of safety bubble mentality that if i'm wearing a, an avalanche airbag or you know soon to be carrying around uh an avatech probe or i have the latest and greatest um beacon for sure we see people make decisions that i think that uh is being swayed by by the equipment and technology do you think that I'm not sure if you have an opinion on this, but do you think that some technologies shouldn't exist? I don't know if some technologies shouldn't exist. I think at a certain level, things should do exactly what they're meant to do. Um, you know, in the realm of, of avalanche beacons and, you know, transceivers, I, you know, I like seeing that <clears throat> for a while there was some some technology being added to, to beacons, and now that's tapered back off. Mm. We're back to the beacon doing exactly what it needs to do. Um, no more, no less. So yeah, I think there, you know, there, there's a balance there, right? You know, we, we we're all carrying around smartphones now, and there's there's so many amazing apps, and and I think people can, I don't want to say paint themselves into a corner, but they can certainly get to a point where they they might be or possibly relying on on too much technology to move through the mountains, mm-hmm. um, where they really need to kind of boil it back, and distill it down you know, to what am I actually using? Uh, what are my resources? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boil it down. Uh, here's another interesting experiment. Uh, a town in ne- the Netherlands called Drochten. Uh, somebody decided to do an experiment there where they took down all of the street signs. They removed all <laughs> of the street signs and traffic, like traffic accidents decreased. Uh, and the person who formulated this said there have been few small collisions, uh, but these are almost to be encouraged. We want small accidents in order to prevent serious ones in which people get hurt. Wow. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, It says motorists need the sense of danger to feed their attention uh, rather than external controls. Interesting. Very interesting. It's it's amazing how many parallels there are uh, in just in life. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to your gear recommendation. Something that we ask every single one of our meisters. I, I think, unless I forgot to ask a couple of them, which I actually think I did. So, whatever. <laughs> um, let's let's get a gear recommendation from you. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's so many types, and, mm-hmm. and you know whether it's clothing or gear but you know there's definitely one thing that that is i've realized over the past couple of years has not left my pack and it basically gets shifted pack to pack to pack um and maybe it's just in the realm that i work in colder temperatures but uh you know <clears throat> basically it's a puffy jacket right a light puffy jacket um mountain hardware ghost whisper puffy jacket yeah that that and one that, actually has never been recommended we've had uh, numerous puffy jackets before and that one is for its weight and its warmth and its durability. It's, you know, I have a, a couple of them, but I just can't seem to damage them. Can, can they, you identify like what it is about this ghost whisperer that is different? Like, 
like why is this down da- this down jacket different from all other down jackets again it kind of goes into the the weight yeah you know it's super light it's super compactable um it doesn't matter if it's a, a small day pack in the summer um alpine pack doesn't matter if it's my ski pack doesn't matter if it's a pack i'm carrying you know a high altitude above eight thousand meters um if it's not on my body then the puffy is always in my pack mm-hmm. and it's it's constantly going back and forth and it's a layer that I've realized I can wear basically every day of the year, no matter what the environment is. Yeah. Very um, good. Yeah. The mountain hardware ghost whisper down puffy jacket on Brian's Meister profile page as well. You'll also find a quote from him. Not sure what it is yet, but I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's go into the last question that we are integrating in every single interview. This is this was recommended by Casey Green, uh, yeah. Meister number one hundred and four, I believe, and that is who do you want to see as the next Mountain Meister? Uh, next Mountain Meister, um, you know, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Maurizio Fellini, and he's an Italian IFMGA guide, but uh, more importantly, he is a high altitude. A heli pilot, and Maurizio is a dear friend. He co-owns a heli service out of Kathmandu in Nepal, and has obviously worked. Um, we've worked with him hand in hand, doing film projects, uh, production work, and then obviously just transferring um, our guests on our expeditions back and forth between, you know, Kathmandu and, and the mountains. Um, and Maurizio is—he's one of those people you meet that could obviously have the label of the most interesting man in the world. (laughs) Yes, perfect. Well, keep an eye out for Maurizio on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Did he ever let you fly the helicopter, Brian? Uh, I think he lets me think that I've flown the helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on our website, mtn.com. Meister.com. Brian Guides for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. You can check them out at jhmg.com, I believe. Correct. All right. All right. Hope you enjoyed that throwback number 113 with Brian Warren. Don't forget to go check out that support page on our website. All the other sheeple are doing it too. Now, if you're not quite ready to support us financially, there are some other things you can do to help us. One of them is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps us get discovered by other folks just like you. You can do all of that, but most importantly, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to Mountain Meister. I'm the host of this podcast, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening. <laughs>